In this episode of Elton Reed's Book Week, I've got a book. Of course, it's a book about movies. It's a book about movies that a movie star made. It's a book about movies that a movie star made about books about a movie star made. Say that one time fast. Well, okay. Seriously, it's a book about the movies a movie star made. Did I overly complicate that for no reason? Yeah, a bit. This movie star worked diligently throughout his career to refine his craft, and to me, is an inspiration in a way, and he's been forgotten by the 24-hour content-on-demand world, and damn it, we should be ashamed of ourselves. He hustled for opportunities, used his formidable prowess to get work, and make it all happen. Plus... He lived and worked in film from its gnarly beginnings through one of the weirdest, dumbest events in Hollywood history and still managed to make a shit ton of movies and a shit ton of money. After reading this book, I came away thinking of him as an inspiration of sorts and a cautionary tale, kinda, or neither. Who knows? I'll tell you about the book and him and you decide because I don't live in your brain and I'm not going to do that work for you. I just visit your ears from time to time, stay long enough to delight and entice, and make your mouth water by fucking with your brain and saying things like, imagine you have lemon juice in your mouth right now, right now, at this moment. Mmm, sour lemon juice all in your mouth and tongue. Sour, sour lemon juice. Is your mouth watering? Is your mouth watering yet? That was weird, right? It's weird. If not, you're a medical oddity. Okay. Regardless, come along and find out about the cinema of Edward G. Robinson. You won't be disappointed. I wasn't, and I am very, very easily disappointed when it comes to most things, up to and including myself. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three. Two, X minus one, fire. Thank you for choosing this podcast to pass your time with. The only one that I'm aware of made by me, Elton. I read a book a week. If you'd like to contribute to this weird little audio weirdness, help produce it, be involved and such, you, you can contribute through Patreon and this podcast's Anchor.fm website. I'll put the links to that uh, to that stuff in the description. Uh, Cash App, I'll put that in there too, because why not? You can give me stuff, uh, money, you know, because I need some. Fuck. Uh, you'd be surprised the surroundings that I'm in. They are, uh, they are not... Uh, recording ideal, I want to say. Now, if you're poor, uh, as poor as I am, uh, and still want to help, I appreciate the tenacity. You can help by giving it a five-star review on whatever you get your podcast from. Um, it takes almost no time at all, and it helps so, so very much. If you have any questions, concerns, or anything, you can hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, and such, too. I'll leave those in the episode description as well. Now, the book. This time around is The Cinema of Edward G. Robinson, written by James Robert Parrish and Alvin H. Marhill. It's a gauzy, rose-colored glasses look into the cinema life of Edward G. Robinson, a name and movie star that's been long forgotten, I think. 
How do I know that? Because I asked uh, on a Twitter poll, and based on the overwhelming consensus of the one person that participated, it is believed that Edward G. Robinson and movies did not exist before 1977. Well, guess what, motherfuckers? We're going to gain some Edward G. knowledge today, and you'll be a better person for it. What you do with that knowledge is up to you. Maybe it sparks a curiosity to seek out Edward G. Robinson movies, which leads you into other movies by the great actors and actresses of his era, and you go on to become a cinephile idiot savant hipster that I stand behind in a line at a farmer's market overhearing you give nuanced critiques of Veronica Lake's best roles and thinking, can you just pick a fucking tomato already? Or... Maybe you decide to bring back Edward G. Robinson in the form of a nifty meme that's later screen printed on t-shirts you sell on Etsy. That's later picked up and worn ironically by a tat-faced trap rapper whose pictures printed in magazines all over the world, inadvertently launching an Edward G. revival that gets a much-needed biopic in the works and shines a little light into the bleak, over-comic-booked world of contemporary cinema offerings. You know? Something like that. Remember, just remember where you got the idea from, all right? Yeah. Now, our journey begins with this book. What's its deal? Well, that's interesting because before the web linked the world to an infinite electronic warehouse of porno sprinkled very lightly with slightly usable knowledge and a forum to read the psychotic ramblings of celebrities, I'm talking about Twitter. Mankind operated on a seek and ye shall find, maybe it depends, method of research and learning. Often the knowledge one sought for a subject could be found in various books strewn across a myriad of bookshelves found in stores or libraries or people that, I don't know, that had, they made books? I don't know. This book is one of those books as it consists of a specific kind of information about a specific subject. Uh, Compiling that information used to take some pretty hefty work. Like I said, you had to put the info together yourself. Filmographies weren't an IMDB search away. No key tapping an actor's name into a search engine and getting a handy list of movies they were nude in. No, usually they were only really known by experts or creepy movie nerds. Yeah. Yeah, I could say that because I kind of am one. So, yeah, creepy movie nerds, okay? Cinephiles. Okay, cinephiles. How about that? You happy now? Happy? So, if you were trying to nail down a movie that, say, Edgy Robinson made, that that nickname isn't going to stick. You either had to find someone who knew, find someone who told you that they knew, but most likely it was somebody uh, you were going to find who thought they knew but really didn't know, misremember the title of the movies you wanted to know about, and the whole time thought Edward G. Robinson was a U.S. president. As it happens, the last one is just about every human being on Earth right now. So? So? So before Google, IMDb, and YouTube, there were books like this one the cinema of Edward G. Robinson. Edward G. Robinson was a bona fide, legit movie star back in the days before Jesus and Dinosaurs, and this book is what needed to exist to tell you about them before the internet existed. What do I mean by that? Well, fellow internet denizen, in this case, uh, it's the filmography of Edward G. Robinson. 
So, what kind of creepy cinephile nerd would write a book like this? Better still, what kind of nerdophile, cine-creepy, nerdophile, creepy cinephile would get with another one and team up to write a book like this? Well, let's find out. We'll start with James Robert Parrish, a guy whose name I instantly confused with four-time NBA champion Robert Parrish, one of the greatest, if not the greatest center to ever play for the Boston motherfucking Celtics. I thought, wow, so this is what he did with his spare time when he wasn't fucking people up with his high arc jump shot? He busted out film reference books on the side. Interesting. As it happens, there's more than one guy named Robert Parrish on the planet. Seriously. Better still, the guy that helped write this book, his first name is James, so they're not even the same kind of thing. James Robert, not the Boston Celtic Parish, is the author of more than 100 books about show business and Hollywood celebrities. From the looks of it, they're mostly film reference books like this one, unauthorized biographies that never seem to end in a lawsuit somehow, and various books that lump together similar celebrities that were relevant during a specific time, such as a book he wrote called The 40s Gals. Pretty on the nose, if you ask me. At least liven it up a little bit. Spice that shit up. Call it the 1940s Titties Committee. Or if it has to be boring, something like the 40s female filmography. Though, though that might piss off a lot of buyers looking for film lists of specifically middle-aged actresses. That's a fetish group you don't want to piss off. You know? Hi, I'd like to return this piece of shit lie you call a book, please. Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm sorry. The book didn't meet your expectations, sir? No! No, it did not! I was specifically looking for information and imagery of actors like Katie Holmes, Alicia Silverstone, uh, what's her, uh, Carmen Electra, people like that. Instead, I opened this up, and it's people older than my grandmother. Uh, Lauren Bacall, Susan Hayward, Ann Sheridan. I mean, come on. According to this book, Ann Sheridan died in 1967. It's disgusting. This is not what I thought it was. I was looking for famous women in their 40s, not famous women of the 1940s. That's that's fine, sir. Um, I can do the return for you if you want. No problem. Just let, let me get the book back and uh, just hand me the book and I'll, I'll scan. I'll scan it. What? Why does it? Why does it smell? My my God. Why are these pages stuck together? Well, I didn't say I didn't use the book, did I? That was, okay. Now, now Alvin H. Merrill, the other author of this book, is a different story. I looked around and could find out very little about Alvin, which is a shame. Some authors just like to keep a low profile, I guess. So, I will read a great obituary about the guy that I found in the Charleston Gazette mail. All those double features Alvin H. Merrill sat through as a kid paid off in the long run. Merrill of Glen Rock, New Jersey, a film historian and prolific author whose movie star subjects ranged from Edward G. Robinson to Tommy Lee Jones died Saturday. He was 76. Growing up in Brockton, Massachusetts during Hollywood's golden age, Merrill slipped away to the movie house three times a week, usually with his sister said his son, Stephen. That stoked a lifelong fascination with films. By day, Merrill had a career in the marketing, broadcasting, and recording industries, including a stint in the 1980s, writing feature stories and press releases for CBS television. 
On the side, he wrote two dozen books, including the definitive reference guide to made-for-TV movies, the five-volume set Movies Made for Television, 1964 to 2004, lists and summarizes more than 5,000 movies created for the small screen, beginning with the very first one, NBC's See How They Run, starring John Forsythe, Leslie Nielsen, Jan Wyatt, and George Kennedy. Leonard Malton, the film critic, wrote the foreword for Movies Made for Television, and Merrill was a contributor to Malton's annual movie and video guides. Many of Merrill's books focused on the filmographies of Hollywood's biggest stars, Mickey Rooney, Sidney Poitier, Robert Mitchum, and Anthony Quinn, among others. His books were characterized by fascinating detail, such as the revelation that to work in South Africa on the 1951 film Cry, The Beloved Country, Poitier had to become producer Zoltan Korda's slave because only indentured blacks were permitted only indentured blacks were permitted to enter the country. Merrill especially loved movies from the 40s and 50s. That's all he talked about, his son said. Merrill died after suffering a stroke. He is survived by his son, a grandson, and a sister. His wife, Sandra, died in 1998. He died in 2010. Books of the kind that Merrill and Paris wrote were the IMDb of the print era back when all those movies could only be seen in a movie theater. In those days, movies were these grand, larger-than-life stories that were so amazing, color wouldn't stick to them, no matter how hard all the colors cried, begged, and pleaded to be in them. The movies were so spectacular that young children, colored entirely in shades of black, white, and gray, would stomp out their cigarettes, take a shot of cheap scotch, walk out of the black and white coal mines, shops, and lumber mills they were working in, and sell empty bottles to grocery stores just to see those movies. To be clear, by black and white, I mean, of course, that color would also not stick to them because it was forbidden. Who would they flock to see after a hard day's work of 17 hours in the black and white coal mines? Who appeared in those mythical movies? Movie stars, dummy! Who else? Nothing but top-shelf, grade-A movie stars, because regular actors couldn't exist back then. That's physics. Enter Edward G. Robinson. Edward G. Robinson once said, If I were just a little bit taller, if I were a baller, if I had a girl who looked good, I would call her. That is not what he said, but that is a song from the 90s. Uh, written by a guy named Skilo, I think. Anyway, that just slipped in there. I'm sorry. Edward G. Robinson once said, if I were just a little bit taller and I was a little more handsome or something like that, I could have played all those roles that I have played and played many more. There is such a thing as a handicap, but you've got to be that much better as an actor. It kept me from certain roles that I might have had, but then it kept others from playing my roles. So I don't know that it's not altogether balanced. I can't say I entirely agree with that. I like to think that everything is malleable. Still, Edward G. is probably the foremost example of an actor making the most of his disadvantages. Uh, well, I mean, other than handicapped actors and actresses, of course, or actors in general. I don't know if you do actresses anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, he was short and not too pretty. 
he disproved his philosophy by flipping the expectations and making the little man the dominating character. He made what could have been seen from the outset as an easily beaten, short, stocky nothing into a scary motherfucker to be feared. He managed to carve out a career as one of the most successful leading men in films in an industry dominated by tall, elegant-looking, handsome, love interest types. You know, those type of guys. He said, I'd look at myself in the dressing room mirror and I'd stretch myself to my full 5'5 five, five or 5'6, five, whatever it was, to make me appear taller and to make me able to dominate all the others and to mow them down to my size. Mow them down. He did that shit with versatility and skill. It's like Dwayne Johnson stepping into a scene and flexing while Kevin Hart utterly fucking dominates him in acting prowess and power instead of, you know, what he usually does, you know, sounds scared and confused while screaming in frequencies that only a cat can hear. How does he, for real, how does he still get acting jobs? Seriously, he just, I get, okay, he's a good comedian. He's funny, but his roles are the same fucking thing over and over again. He's like a one-trick pony or whatever the fuck that is. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't... I digress. So where did Edward G. Robinson get the bullets to mow down the handsome hordes? Well, it wasn't bullets. It was modesty. And one big-ass bullet. Edward had a huge dick. His career started when he strutted into a Broadway casting director's office, walked past the protesting secretaries and assistants, kicked in the office door, and approached the guy's desk. What the fuck is going on here? Who is this short, ugly asshole? He yelled as he reached for his phone. Edward G. looked him over, smirked, and said, You don't know who I am? The casting director answered, you know, while frantically dialing for security. Fuck no, short shit. Get the fuck out of my... Before he could finish his sentence, Edward G. unzipped his fly and took his monstrously out of proportion for his size. Huge! beast of a dick laying it on the guy's desk this is who the fuck i am he said smirking again the director didn't see that smirk of course as he was transfixed by the abnormally large romanian tube steak resting between his nameplate and pencil cup stunned the casting director slowly placed the phone back on its cradle completely transfixed on robinson's johnson dear God, he said, you're going to be a star. Robinson raised his fist to the sky in triumph and exclaimed, acting! The rest is history, as they say. Of course, that isn't true. That's that's insane. If, if, if that's all it took to be a famous actor in this world, I'd have so many Oscars. Hey-oh! <laughs> See what I did? See what I said? I implied that I the, the thing after the big... The dick, the, the dick thing. Like, like I have a big... I'll move on. No, that's not how Edward G. Robinson started his career or anything. No, he began his life as Emmanuel Goldenberg in Bucharest, Romania on December 12th, 1893. The fifth of six sons to Morris and Sarah Goldenberg. Her original surname was Gutman. That's a weirdly sinister name that is. I wouldn't have been surprised to find out she was a serial killer at some point. Maybe getting tossed out of her Romanian village for killing everyone. Sa- Sarah, no. No. No, you can't stay, Sarah. 
You've murdered everyone, Sarah. I mean, I still have a knife sticking out of my chest, for God's sake, as we speak. So, no, no, you need to, no, no, don't, don't start with the tears, Sarah. You killed everyone in town and their pets, Sarah, and their pets. Who kills parakeets? And answer, you do, Sarah. Gutman kills, Sarah Gutman kills parakeets. No, no, you have to go. I'm sorry. We can't take all the murdering anymore. Frankly, look, with the last name Gutman, okay, we probably should have known better. We're, okay, I, we're partly to blame, I guess. I guess, I guess, I guess, you know what, you know what, let me, let me talk to some of the survivors. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you can, maybe you can come back for Christmas or, you know, ah, damn it, Sarah. Did you just stab me in the leg with a fork? Go. No, no Christmas. Just go. Morris Goldenberg, the patriarch of the Goldenberg family was a builder by trade. He decided partly because of religious persecution, uh, to take the whole family to America. Little Emmanuel slash Edward G. was nine when he arrived in Manhattan, but he later said, I was born when I came to America. Because he was a minor, he automatically acquired U.S. citizenship when his dad got his final papers. The Goldenberg family sorted themselves into various career tracks, uh, after they got to America, three of them getting into the jewelry business. But little Emmanuel Manny Edward G. wasn't having that. His family wanted him to be a dentist. But Manny Emmanuel had a different plan. He wanted to be a rabbi, and then a lawyer, and then a defense lawyer, to be exact. He wanted to instill the right sort of ideas into children, whatever that means. I mean, is he talking about kids that have committed a crime, or... Or would that mean he's, he'd scare kids straight by discussing the cases he's defending, maybe? Like, kids, kids, I know you think playing with fire is cool. But I have, I, I have first-hand knowledge, it, it can have terrible consequences. Like, okay, for instance, the person I'm defending tomorrow, they took it upon themselves to rush into a burning pet store to save all the pets. And now they're being blamed for setting the fire. Aw, well... They'll be okay. They did the right thing. They wanted to save all of it. No. Oh, no, kids. No. They set the fire. They set it so that they could be seen as a hero when they saved the pets. They're they're completely fucked up. What? That's that's not good. That's that's a, no, 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 it's not good. No. So what I'm saying, kids, is that mental health is important. Don't be a sociopath arsonist. Talk it out before you, you know, you want to burn down a building with pets in it. Are are they going to jail? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> Are you kidding? Of course not. I'm a great fucking defense lawyer. They'll be home by lunchtime. Stay in school. Dope is for dopes. Emmanuel attended public school 20, the same school George Gershwin attended, a guy he would later hang out with a lot. Uh, it was later, while in prep school, that he became interested in acting. I was trying to find my way, he told an interviewer. I read Shaw's dramatic criticisms, and I saw that acting was not all strutting and fretting. The thing got a hold of me in junior year in high school. Now everyone has dramatic instincts, but I began to realize the scope of it. To be entrusted with a character was always a big responsibility to me. Shaw's dramatic criticisms, by the way, for those that are uh, interested, the Shaw mentioned in the title is George Bernard Shaw, a renowned literary genius born on July 26, 1856 in Dublin, Ireland. He was a dramatic critic for the Saturday Review, 
Uh, Shaw wrote the plays Man and Superman, Major Barbara, and Pygmalion, which was later adapted as My Fair Lady in both musical and film form. In 1910, not yet Edward G. Robinson entered City College of New York, where he became interested in music, literature, and the arts. He would buy postcard reproductions of paintings and, and glue them to his wall at home. Of course, theater. He also became interested in theater. And after dropping his pants in his first audition, unleashing his freakishly large dick and proclaiming, This is my acting! He was instantly named Best Collegiate Actor of All Time, given every theatrical award available, and sent onto Broadway. That's not true, obviously, but after his reading of Antony's soliloquy and Julius Caesar, he was elected to the Elizabethan Society. So, I mean, you know, kind of the same thing, right? In case you were wondering, um, the Elizabethan Society is not a society dedicated to the furtherment of people named Elizabeth. It's a club for people interested in Shakespeare. On scholarship, not yet Edward G. joined the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, or AADA, in October of 1911, where his closest friend was Joseph Schildkraut, the late actor once noted, Manny stuck to his work and I looked at girls. <laughs> it was while with the AADA that Emmanuel Goldenberg became Edward G. Robinson. He took Robinson from a character in a play, Edward from the, you know, the King of England, uh, Edward, and G was for Goldenberg. He later said, Franklin Sargent told me that I had to get an Anglo-Saxon name. Whatever that is. I kept E.G., but I don't know to this day why I chose Robinson as a last name. If I had to do it again, I'd have taken a shorter name. You have no idea how long it takes to write Edward G. Robinson for a flock of autograph hunters. Ho, 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 Edward G. Grumbling about famous people's problems. His autograph, by the way, goes for between $150 and $500 if you want to pick one up. I would... If I was making the kind of money I imagine a person who bitched about his name being too long for autograph hunters might have. Ah, such is life. Robinson's first exposure to a non-classroom theatrical crowd was in 1913 at an amateur night. He tried out a monologue he wrote. It helped him get his first professional gig with a stock company in Binghamton, New York, whose town motto is, Yeah, there are other places in New York besides New York City, assholes. I don't believe them. But you can do with that what you will. I'm joking. Of course, their actual motto is restoring the pride. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't. I guess they damaged some pride at some point, and now the whole town needs to repair it. I don't know. I don't understand how a whole town is responsible. It doesn't matter. Then Edward G. Robinson ran smack dab into World War One. After joining the Navy, he found himself nowhere near the action as the closest he got to Europe was eight miles from Brooklyn. He'd do KP and office work and then go to the movies a lot. Besides liking Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, he thought the actors in them were garbage and would never cut it on Broadway. Of his time in the military, he said, we were all secluded up there because of the flu epidemic, he recalled. But the farthest I ever got as a sailor was a rowboat in Pelham Bay. And when the armistice was signed, I broke down and cried by myself in a YMCA hut, and I figured, now what have I done to save the world for democracy? That seems a little dramatic, and I mean, come on, who wouldn't want to be involved in a war, but not actually have to fight in it? I mean, come on, to be shot at? No, thank you. It seems a little dramatic, even for a big-dicked actor, but 
I think it has a lot to do with what happens later in his life. Just saying. Robinson, by the way, was on his way now, sort of. He he bounced around from the he bounced around from theater troupe to theater troupe, picking up jobs where he could get them. Robinson was on his way now, sort of. He bounced around from theater troupe to theater troupe, picking up jobs where he could find them. He said, I was aware early that the acting profession had to be created and carved out by oneself. So I decided that I wanted to do a certain amount of stock to develop myself in a variety of roles and build my sense of projection bit by bit to be solidly founded. I wanted to spend a year with Shakespeare. But I revised those ideas when I found out that no individuality was permitted as far as interpretation was concerned. You had to read it in a certain way, stand in a certain spot, and I realized that there was little chance for development. I also wanted to be with a circus, with a burlesque company, in vaudeville, to touch every branch of the entertainment world. Edgy. Huh? Is that working? No. Had big plans, but soon found that those plans were a little optimistic in the face of the real world shit on your dreams because your short and ugly reality of the entertainment business. He'd often go into interviews and auditions, competing with other people that were younger and taller and much better looking than himself. He was going to give up acting and go into teaching, but uh, was saved because he knew something about languages. He reportedly spoke seven languages fluently, among them Yiddish, Romanian, and German. So when he saw that foreign characters of the plays uh, he was auditioning for took the longest to fill, as there weren't uh, as many actors able to pull them off because of the accents needed, and he, he found his niche. Robinson used those various ethnic types as a way to demonstrate and showcase his acting chops to an industry otherwise reluctant to give him a chance. He played a French soldier, a Belgian patriot, a German, an Englishman, a Cockney Englishman, uh, a Japanese guy. They used to call him the League of Nations. It worked, though. After that, he never left Broadway, he said. Soon, good reviews piled up and he was bouncing from one show to the next. Though he was still a struggling actor... He struggled a little less than some. Hollywood soon took notice. It was a different, desperate Hollywood back then, mind you. It wasn't the chew them up and spit them out, Tinseltown monster we've all uh, come to know and love. But still, Hollywood did come sniffing around. They said, Edward, Edward, Hollywood said, we've seen the reviews. We've heard the stories. We heard you can act. Will you please, please, please be in a movie? Bah, Edward answered giving Hollywood the finger in the process. But we need you, Edward. We need your acting. With furrowed brown anger in his eyes, he unleashed his fleshy baseball bat from its trouser prison and slapped Hollywood across its face, leaving a mushroom-shaped welt on its cheeks. You will never have my acting. Do you hear me? Never! Hollywood, wounded, slunk back into the shadows, whimpering. That again, um, obviously not true. There were no fleshy baseball bats involved, He uh, and he didn't turn them down. Uh, but uh, he was just reluctant to do them. Back then, movies were an untried medium, and, and people thought them as kind of cheap and a, and, a, and a fad, and that they'd fizzle out. So as far as the Broadway acting set were concerned, sure, it was easy money, but they didn't see it as having a, a staying power or a future, you know, not the future that live plays had. Although he did think movies were total shit. I mean, in the spring of 1923, he made his first movie. Although, uh, it, it's his only silent movie. It's called The Bright Shawl, playing a Spanish aristocrat. He did this during an interval between plays. Often, gaps between plays were short, 
and uh, he was in demand. He knew how to hustle, too. So still, he felt a little off as his last play was touted as the best thing since sliced shit. It was total shit. It was a flop. It was a floppy piece of shit. Alas, it just so happened that this gap was a little bigger than most. His last play being ass and the movie... Uh, they wanted him to be in was being filmed in Cuba. He'd never been to Cuba. And it was right after Christmas. So he figured why not pull an Adam Sandler and make a quick shit movie for easy money and uh, get a vacation out of it. Yeah. Yeah, Adam Sandler makes movies just for the money and vacations now. He's admitted as much. It's not the coolest way to end a career, but who am I to judge? This podcast isn't paying for plane tickets to Hawaii to stare at Jennifer Aniston in a bikini, is it? Well... Robinson took the Cuban silent film money, did the gigcation, and the uh, the movie went nowhere. He went back to being a big deal on Broadway. No big loss, as, you know, motion pictures were uh, for fucking chumps, baby. They weren't the stage. Edward G. banged out play after play, finally blowing up in one called The Racket, in which he played a gangster. The part was that of Nick Scarcy and an interpretation that was chillingly close to the public conception of Al Capone. He was so good at it that the play tour, that when the play toured the country, uh, Chicago wouldn't let them do it uh, in Chicago because the play was too much, was much too true. Chicago thought the play would piss off Al Capone and he'd, you know, uh, straight up fucking murder everyone tall enough to catch a bullet. How fucking insane is that? Really? I mean, the city of Chicago was afraid Edward G. Robinson's portrayal of a fictional character in a play might piss off Al Capone and toss him into a gangster terror spree. That's a great fucking review right there. What What do you mean we can't play Chicago? I don't understand. Well, they're afraid Al Capone is going to see it and fucking murder everyone in sight. No shit? Yeah, no shit. Well, cha-ching! Methinks I need a bigger paycheck if I'm able to drive a psycho to murder me and everyone I know, right? What do you think? 100 extra bucks a day? What's a good review death threat equivalent? Is there a chart or something? Robinson Star climbed the Broadway hierarchy, which I assume means p- puffier sleeves, taller wigs, and I don't, more booze, maybe? I don't, I don't know how Broadway works. I know glamour, I know cocaine wasn't the glamour drug back then as... As it can be found in uh, like everything from soft drinks to toothpaste, right? Mmm, cocaine toothpaste. Regardless, Edward G. was a big-ass deal. Then, Hollywood came calling again in 1929. Edward, please, Edward! We need that sweet acting in our movies, Edward. Robinson rose from his Broadway throne, slowly unleashed his third leg from its pant-legged prison. You want this acting? He yelled as he leered and swung his manhood around like a propeller. You shall have my acting. You shall have it. I'm kidding again. Um, They did want him in films again, and he went for it. Of course, the vehicle that began it all was called The Hole in the Wall. It was not the skyrocket to make his name a marquee draw kind of movie. It was Claudette Colbert's first sound picture, though. That's a pretty big deal. A little background on Claudette Colbert. In 1999, the American Film Institute voted Colbert the 12th greatest female star of classic Hollywood cinema. So she's pretty fucking fantastic as far as Hollywood goes. Side note, 
it seems like a lot of mainstream movie titles in the 30s through the 50s could work just as effectively as porno titles. I mean, the hole in the wall, you know, you know, you know, you know, right? I mean, you know, glory, like glory hole is what I'm saying. It's basically what a movie about glory holes could be named. Hell, might, shit, might actually be named right now. That's, that's, that's all I'm saying. It's anyway, a lot of the titles work both ways. It just seems like to me. Anyway, tell me, tell me no one thought about Dick when that title was tossed around. You be the judge. His second talkie was released in 1931 and it was called Night Ride. You see what I'm saying? You see? Robinson bounced back and forth between making the movies and making the plays. I don't know why. I don't know why I did that. But I'm leaving that shameful stupidity in as a learning experience. Irving Thalberg engaged Robinson to play Tony, the handicapped grape grower, in a new film production of A Lady to Love. Do you see what I'm saying, people? Porno titles. Anyway, it was MGM's sound version of Sidney Howard's They Knew What They Wanted. Again, porn kind of... But it was filmed previously by Paramount as The Secret Hour, which, I mean, argued could be a porn title too, but would probably work better as a softcore porn title, you know, like Cinemax at three in the morning kind of thing, you know. Anyway, the story goes that Irving Thalberg, uh, Thalberg, by the way, was an American film producer during the early years of motion pictures. He was called the Boy Wonder for his youth and ability to select scripts choose actors, gather production staff, and make profitable films, including Grand Hotel, China Seas, Camille, Mutiny on the Bounty, and The Good Earth. He uh, worked slash ran Universal and later MGM in the 30s. So the story goes that Thalberg realized Robinson's screen potential, called the actor into his office, and offered him a generous five-year million-dollar contract. Robinson, who still considered his loyalties to the stage, whipped out his dick, slapped Thalberger about the face and head with it, and bellowed, You insult this acting? This acting? How dare you, sir? And he stormed out with his giant dick, placidly trailing behind him as he left. Okay, that was, you know. But it's gross and fun to think about. Uh, uh, you know, and fuck it, I'm doing it anyway. No, he held up for a six-month pack to allow him time for some Broadway acting. And his agent was called in as an intermediary. It didn't go well. It didn't go well. And Robinson never worked in a Thalberg film again. Edward went back to Universal. I guess Thalberg was with MGM at that time. Anyway, uh, he went back to Universal to make a few more movies, including one named The Widow from Chicago. Fucking porn name. It was during this time that he made the movie that would make him a star, see? The role of Cesar Enrico Bandello in Little Caesar, yeah? Sorry, I was reliving the Warner Brothers cartoons parody of Edward G. Robinson right there. Yeah. You know, I'll post a link to a to a playlist of Edward G. Robinson films I, I found on YouTube. I'll, I'll put that in the Twitter account. So follow the podcast on Twitter and you'll get that link. I'll pin it. Rico in Little Caesar made him a household name and a box office draw. Uh oh shit. Rico is the shortened name of the role I mentioned earlier. And within weeks of the film's release, the legend of the underground character Robinson had created was already beginning to haunt him. When, wherever he went, uh, he was not recognized as Edward G. Robinson, the actor, but as Little Caesar. And for more than 20 years afterwards, critics in reviewing his movies were judges' work against his portrayal of Rico. 
whether he was playing a gangster or not, somehow they'd work Little Caesar into the critique. When I did Little Caesar, said Robinson, they wanted to star me, put me up above the title. But I said to the Warners that despite the fact that I had been starred in many plays on Broadway, this is another field. I suggested that they try another picture. And if the public really accepts me as such, then they could put my name above the title. But once you do, I told them, since I'm signing a long-term contract with you, you will continue to do it as long as I'm working for you. <clears throat> that is some gangster-ass shit right there. Uh, listen, I hear you want me uh, to be the name in lights. I get it, okay? But listen, try me out for another movie or so. You know, first, you know, let's see how it goes. Let's see if the public is down with it. I don't, I don't want you, you know, to go all the way in on this to find out that I'm not what they want. You know what I mean? And then, you know, you lose out, okay? So let's test the waters. But once those tests come back positive, my name had better stay in those lights for good. Boom! Dick out. Slap, slap. This is my acting. Why I keep doing that, I don't know. But the core message is true. Try me out. And if I'm solid, then name and lights forever. That's confidence from a guy who was told he wasn't pretty enough for stage or screen years earlier. Also during this time, he managed to get his wife pregnant and cranked out his only son, Emmanuel Robinson Jr., later named, uh, you know, Edward G. Robinson Jr. Uh, it was a kid he would basically overlook for the rest of the kid's life, basically, you know, in, in and out. Eventually, he'd wish he'd done a better job at being a father, but that's not how reality played out, and that's not how he played it either. He was a shit daddy because uh, he was focused on that paycheck and artistry, damn it. Some people's priorities, right? It's what makes for uh, interesting yet tragic real-life characters. It's a shame. It really is. Robinson's star continued to rise as he became a regular name on the marquee through the 30s and 40s with movies like Smart Money, Five Star Final, Little Giant, Dark Hazard, I Loved a Woman, The Whole Town's Talking, Dark Tower, This Cock Crows for You, Daryl Superdog, Ph.D., When a Man Rides a Woman, and every, Everything After Dark Tower I Made Up. Tell me that you didn't kind of mix it in because they fucking have porno titles. I'm telling you. It was around this time that Robinson wanted to get away from gangster roles because typecasting is bullshit. He was an actor, damn it. He was supposed to portray a gangster in a movie, but turned it down. Humphrey, here's looking at you, kid. Bogart filled in the part instead. Edward G. said it was nice because it brought Humphrey Bogart back into pictures. And then eventually he became a very important star. He and Bogart made the first of their five films together in Bullets or Ballots. Robinson said in retrospect, in those days, I would play the leading role and he, Bogart, would be opposite me and we would shoot at each other, you know, perhaps a reel before the picture finished. Since I happened to be the so-called star, he would die a reel ahead of me and I would go on with a bullet in me right up to the last scene. In Key Largo, though, the last time we did a picture together, the situation was reversed. He was then the star, and I just the visitor. And we had our shootout, as usual, but I died first, and he went on for another reel. That movie was the first time Edward G. was on the right side of the law. Uh, bullets or ballots. He was getting tired of being in crime dramas and wanted to branch out. He thought he was going to go down in film history as a type. The rumor was he took the movie on condition that he would be 
given the role of Beethoven in a contemplated picture of the great composer's life. What he got instead was a trip to London to be in a comedy called Thunder in the City. It wasn't special. The movie after that, however, would become a screen classic, Kid Galahad. In it, he and Humphrey Bogart faced each other as rival fight managers who killed each other off at the fade-out. Later, it would be resurrected in 1962 as a vehicle for Elvis Presley. Despite Edward G. not liking being typecast, he didn't mind spending the money he got from it. From his early days in the theater, he would try to live as lavishly as he could. When the fat checks from movie studios started rolling in, Edward went all out by indulging his passions. Most notably, an art collection that included Eugène Delacroix, Jean-Baptiste Camille Courot, Pierre-Augusto Renoir, Georges Seurat, Paul Gougion, oh my God, Edward Degas, Vincent van Gogh, Henri de Toulouse, oh my God, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, Henri Matisse, Pablo Picasso, and American painters Grant Wood and Yasao Kuniyoshi. Outstanding was the Black Clock by Cezanne that he collected. He amassed an enviable collection despite not having experience in collecting art at all. Life magazine reported in 1948 that experts valued one of his Renoirs at just $35,000, about $350,000 today. Still, he loved collecting so much that he soon outpaced his income and went into debt to get more. Because there's a more than just drug addiction out there, people. Be aware. You, you can pick up a nasty art buying habit without even realizing it. Soon, you're on a two war haul a month kick, throwing down thousands you don't have just to get that rush of putting an original Howdy Doody print from Warhol's 1981 Myths portfolio on your wall. But I need it, man, you say. It's based on a photo of Howdy Doody taken by Andy himself. You don't understand as you reflexively scratch your arms working on an itch that never seems to end. Look, I talked to the dealer. He won't come down as it's from Warhol's prolific 80s period. I'm just a little short, man. You know, uh, a few thousand, you know, uh, if you could just float me alone. All right. I, I'll make it worth your while. Okay. You you want me to go down on you? You you want that? Man? I, I'll make it happen, man. I, I will, man. I, I need this Warhol. I need it. So Robinson went into debt to pursue his passion and was devastated when he was forced to sell the collection off in 1956 as part of a divorce settlement. Over time, though, he managed to buy back 18 of the paintings and add on three more, including a Monet water lily panel from 1917. He insisted on not calling them a collection anymore, but the remains of one. Robinson's entire second collection, however, was purchased intact after his death for $5 million. Okay, for this next part, I'm pulling from a website because it covers uh, the same thing the book does, but in a little more detail. It's from the uh, website FilmmakerIQ.com. Edward G. Robinson's career took a serious blow in 1949. His charitable work in the 1930s and 40s helped to make him a person of interest for the House Un-American Activities Committee. He had allowed his name to be linked to so many causes, inevitably there were those with a communist tinge. Robinson was named in quote-unquote red channels in connection with 11 communist front organizations. After the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, while not a supporter of communism, he had appeared at a Soviet war relief. After the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, while not a supporter of communism, he had appeared at Soviet war relief rallies to give moral aid to America's new ally, 
which he said could join together in their hatred of Hitlerism. As film historian Stephen J. Ross noted, activists who attacked Hitler without simultaneously attacking Stalin were vilified by conservative critics as either communists, communist dupes, or at least naive liberal dupes. He testified before HUAC, or the House Un-American Activities Committee, and named communist sympathizers Albert Maltz, Dalton Trumbo, John Howard Lawson, Frank Tuttle, and Sidney Buckman, and repudiated some of the organizations he had belonged to in the 1930s and 40s. During his questioning, Edward G. Robinson declared, these rantings, ravings, accusations, smearing, and character assassinations can only emanate from sick, diseased minds of people who rush to the press with indictments of good American citizens. I have played many parts in my life, but no part have I played better or been more proud of than that of being an American citizen. Regardless, although he was never openly blacklisted by the studios, his career suffered, and he took parts in mainly low-budget crime thrillers to get by. His gray list, his quote-unquote gray listing, ended in 1956, when notably anti-communist director Cecil B. DeMille cast Robinson as the traitorous Dathan, 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 anyway, in the Ten Commandments. That same year, he returned to Broadway in In the Middle of the Night, for which he was nominated for a Tony Award as Best Actor. 63-year-old Robinson portrayed an aging widower who married a much younger woman, which you would do. Anyway, early... In 1958, while he was still appearing in the play, he married a much younger woman, Jane Bodenheimer, a 38-year-old dress designer known professionally as Jane Arden. Edward G. Robinson went on to make movies, varying qualities, of course, including some made-for-TV-slash-film-of-the-week types for almost 20 years more. Plus, he worked tirelessly on stage as well. His final film, though not listed in the book, was the Ecological dystopian thriller Soylent Green with Charlton Heston, which is a great fucking movie, by the way. Uh, everyone should see it. Shortly after completing the movie, Edward G. Robinson died of bladder cancer on January 26, 1973. Over 1,500 friends of Robinson attended his service in Los Angeles with another 500 crowded outside. Charlton Heston delivered his eulogy, and afterward, his body was flown to New York, where it was entombed in a crypt in the family mausoleum in Bethel Cemetery in Brooklyn. Among his pallbearers were Jack L. Warner, Hal B. Wallace, Mervyn Leroy, George Burns, Sam Jaffe, and Frank Sinatra. How awesome are you? How awesome are you when George Burns and Frank Sinatra carry your fucking coffin? It's a, it's a rhetorical question, of course. If that happens, you've taken all the awesome, and everyone else goes without. When Edward G. Robinson was honored by the Maskers, that's a club for actors that was founded in Los Angeles in the 1920s. When he was honored by them, after 60 years of acting in the theater, on radio and in films, he spoke of himself as an actor and what it means to be one. He said, An audience identifies with the actor of flesh and blood and heartbeat. As no reader or beholder can identify with even the most artful paragraphs in books or the most inspired paintings. There, says the watcher, but for some small difference in time or costume or inflection or gait I go. And so the actor becomes the catalyst. He brings to bright ignition that spark in every human being that longs for the miracle of transformation. He continued. Every night the actor bears the stigmata which his imagination inflicts upon him and bleeds from a thousand words. I don't know that I have bled very much. 
If I have, I feel no debility from that loss, perhaps because it has been more than balanced by my satisfactions. Now, in the twilight of my long days of acting, I feel invigorated, proud of the calling of player. I am sure it was not in vain. If mummer I was, it was not mere mummer. No more than any actor is mere. No more than any person who gives up himself to the enrichment of other is mere. Only to that degree will I look back. Then he whipped out his massive dick and smashed the podium to splinters while yelling, This! This is my acting! Behold, fellow thespians! Behold my motherfucking acting! The crowd, their mouths having fallen open, both stunned and impressed, could do nothing but applaud. Thank you for listening to Elton Reed's Book a Week. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to rate and review it on whatever platform you get your podcast from. It helps the podcast to rise in the charts and gets it in the uh, recommended list rotations. If, you, uh, if you'd like to contribute to the podcast, you can do so through Patreon or the podcast site on Anchor.fm. Oh, and you can also leave a message on the podcast's uh, Anchor.fm site. A link to both will be in the description. And for uh, updates on the next episode, or if you'd like to contact me directly, or, you know, be sure to follow the podcast on your social media of choice, or all of them. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm on all of them. Pretty sure. Anyway, if not most of them, uh, you know, you can reach out on any of them. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, again, I'll put that link in the description. And if uh, you record me a message and, uh, and uh, are all right with me playing it, I'll include it in the podcast. I did in the last episode-ish, half episode i did in the last one i enjoyed that it's really great you leave as many as you want finally thank you thank you immensely from the bottom of my heart for listening i hope you liked it as much as i liked making it it really is fun you know what else is fun reading a book you should do that this week right now you should do that don't let them die out all right thanks thanks again bye